greet you once again, dear friends, in the name of Christ, the head of the church, the Lord of his people, the one who has infinite qualifications to be our Savior by virtue of the fact that he created the heavens and the earth and all things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was ever made. He is qualified to be our Savior because he has suffered in all points like as we are and yet without sin. He is therefore a faithful high priest, interceding for us against Satan's night and day accusations by virtue of his perfect fulfillment of the Father's will and total obedience to God's plan, even to the death of the cross and God's honoring of his Son and declaring him to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. To that one we shall give an account, perhaps tonight, if the rapture of the church is tonight, to give an account to him at the Bema for all we've ever done with the precious truths he's entrusted to us. For many years, the IFCA movement, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, has been a a source of encouragement to other fellowships like my own, Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, because of your uh, stand for God's revealed word against the vast forces of compromise in the great ecumenical movements of this age. Uh, Satan is totally dedicated with his army of hundreds of millions of demons to creating peace at the expense of truth and so-called love at the expense of commitment to God's revelation. And he is determined to have unity in the darkness, unity in error. And thus the vast ecumenical movement sweeps onward and uh, hundreds of millions of professed Christians are locked into systems over which they have little or no control and uh, are simply asked to give their loyalty, their submission, their lives, their money, their children, without question. And so God has raised up movements like the IFCA to protest these trends. And I believe even the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, which began in the midst of controversy in 1937, when a liberal college in Ashland, Ohio, Ashland College, and its board of trustees of the theological seminary that was established there in 1930, uh, dismissed two of its professors for having the audacity to question and challenge the administration's tolerance of doctrinal error in the school especially in the college. The result of that uh, great crisis in 1937 in the history of the uh, Brethren movement in America was that the whole student body of the seminary walked out with the two dismissed professors and uh, met in a church in Akron, Ohio, and uh, inaugurated a brand new seminary which two years later, in 1939, moved to Winona Lake, Indiana, and the name 
was Grace Theological Seminary in a deliberate uh, contradiction to the trends at Ashland College and Seminary, which was saturated more and more with legalistic concepts of salvation, a works approach to uh, uh, how to get to heaven, and other doctrinal deviations that were intolerable to, to men of discernment, like Alva J. McLean, the president of the seminary, and his right-hand man, uh, Herman A. Hoyt. Uh, when they moved to Winona Lake, uh, God brought them a handful of other faithful, godly uh, teachers uh, who struggled uh, in, in the midst of extreme financial uh, uh, limitations. Uh, renting the top floor of a publishing house in Winona Lake, owned by the Free Methodist Publishing House. And when I finally arrived there as a student, uh, nine years later, in 1948, they still uh, had nothing to show for uh, their dedication to the Lord and his word in the way of outward, visible, physical things. Um, the furniture was uh, rather... Uh, disreputable, lectures punctuated by the collapse of chairs in the classrooms, um, pitiful facilities for a library. But one thing was very obvious to students who began to come there, and that was that uh, that is not really what counts after all. Beautiful buildings and beautiful facilities and beautiful furniture and libraries and all these wonderful things are appreciated as God makes them available, but the, the one thing needful was um, mature, reputable men of God who knew the Lord and knew his word and had the calling and the gift of teaching that word. And so from all over the world, students were attracted, and uh, the reputation of the school was uh, very, very high. In fact, uh, when I went there, I didn't, I'd never even heard of the uh, Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches. Um, I had come to know the Lord at Princeton University as my Savior in 1943, five years earlier. And after three years in the Army in Europe in the Second World War, I came back and finished at Princeton, uh, being very carefully discipled by the missionary who led me to the Lord. Uh, who was used of God to give me a holy horror of liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, uh, false teaching, the cults, and grounded me in the whole counsel of God in a remarkable way. And later, uh, God used that in my life in a very, very important, significant way. He recommended Grace Seminary as the best graduate school of theology that he knew about in America where the whole counsel of God would be taught and his disciples, including me, would be built up uh, in the faith. Uh, not a school that would be dedicated to uh, philosophy or history or human traditions, but to what God says in the only book he ever wrote, the Bible. Well, friends, I want you to know that those early years of my life in Grace Seminary were just uh, euphoric. I, 
I was over, overpowered by the uh, spiritual impact of those godly teachers. At Princeton University, all my professors uh, were brilliant, but none of them seemed to know anything definite uh, about anything. It was just a sharing of human opinions. There were no absolutes at all in the universe, uh, no standards of morality that we could appeal to, uh, no absolute assurance of uh, anything except for the fact that uh, we were making progress in learning, we were ever learning, but somehow never able to come to the knowledge of any absolute truth about anything. Relativism just simply permeated the university. But when I came to Grace Theological Seminary, uh, I was astounded, shocked. I've never fully recovered, in fact. Here were teachers who said, this is what God says, and that's it. I was stunned. You mean we weren't just going to share opinions? No. Here's what God says. <clears throat> now, to be sure, we may question whether or not uh, we have properly interpreted this or that passage and therefore will compare the other passages that are relevant and look them up in a concordance and check the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek words the Holy Spirit used in the inerrant autographs. But once we have arrived at a deep conviction that this is what the passage really means in the light of its context, immediate and general, and that that's what the words really mean, then, friends, we have arrived at something called a theological conviction that this, as a matter of fact, is what God taught on this subject or a hundred other ones. In what we call systematic theology, the whole spectrum of inscripturated propositional revelation. Well, the Lord used that, of course, not only to transform me, from a relativist to an absolutist. <laughs> Not that I know everything about every single statement in the Bible, but uh, friends, the numbers of things that God has given me deep convictions on, which is the only basis upon which any Christian leader can preach at all, is, uh, is absolutely overwhelming to me. In fact, I'm still learning more and more about the vastness and the depth of God's written revelation in Scripture. In 1951, when I graduated, in fact, the very night I graduated, my professor of Hebrew and Old Testament uh, resigned and uh, began teaching in another seminary, and I was asked to uh, take his place in 1951 in the Department of Old Testament and Hebrew and taught for 39 years until 1990. Friends, during the last 10 years of my stay at Grace Seminary, I saw horrible things begin to happen that I absolutely could not comprehend. I was so part and parcel of that seminary, it was my food and drink and sleep, and uh, that's all I ever knew, frankly. Um, and I began to sense that mysterious, strange, sinister, ominous things were happening. I really couldn't quite put my finger on these things. Um, it started in the early 1980s, 
And I know you're not interested in all the details because you're not all that involved with Grace Theological Seminary personally, and that's not my point here, to go into all the intricacies of what happened there with God's direction, believe it or not, using Satan to destroy a seminary. Can God use Satan to destroy a seminary? Well, of course. God's in charge of everything Satan does. I hope you'll agree with that. He's not standing helplessly over here watching Satan destroy his programs. God is sovereign in his world. Read Job chapter 1. In fact, Satan, though instrumental in, in Job's near total destruction, was so infinitesimal compared to God who managed the whole situation, the whole scenario, that Job was still 100% correct when he said, the Lord has given and the Lord, not Satan, or the Lord and Satan, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and Satan wasn't even known to have had any part in his catastrophes and is never mentioned again in the book. He sort of phases out as an infinitesimal puppet pulled by invisible strings from the third heaven. God did everything that Job experienced in the way of catastrophe. That's what Isaiah 45, 7 says, that if there's a catastrophe, God has done it, not some other God. Friends, I use my words carefully because what is true of Grace Seminary, which is the one I happen to know the best, is true of every seminary in the world. In fact, every mission board. In fact, every Christian organization and even God's special organism on this earth, the church, expressed in local church bodies like this one. Satan is always available to bring destruction, division, chaos, confusion, uh, distrust, frustration, and defeat. And believe it or not, God, God is in charge of all that. Why? Because the minute his servants take their eyes off of him, they are instantaneously vulnerable to the enemy who moves right in. And God is saying to us, just keep your eye on me. I'll take care of him. In fact, remember what Peter said? Resist the devil and he will flee. He is totally helpless against even one believer who trusts the Lord, who obeys the Lord, who at least occasionally does something biblical, like praying, <laughs> like obeying. Satan is helpless. He really isn't all that important, but he is definitely the God of this world, is ubiquitous, is available, accessible to the unbeliever or the disobedient believer to whatever extent he may deliberately, intentionally take his eyes off the Lord and look to himself, and he'll sink like Peter did in the Sea of Galilee. And friends, I just say that because what I'm telling you about Grace Seminary is something that is happening everywhere in the world where two or three of God's servants are gathered together to do his will, 
such as perpetuating the whole counsel of God through in-depth discipleship. Satan has that organization as a prime target. And God and angels, righteous angels are watching, and Satan and fallen angels are watching. In fact, Paul said, we are a spectacle to men and angels, and you are the center of everything important going on in the whole universe. And what you and I do in reference to God in terms of prayer, searching his word, and obedience has cosmic and eternal significance. Well, all of a sudden, by the early 1980s, friends, I pardon me if I uh, express a little emotion at times here tonight. <laughs> I'm talking about my family, if you understand what I mean. By the early 1980s, I began, began to sense something happening to our school that frankly shook me to the core of my being. We, by then, had a new president in the seminary who took over in 1976 from Dr. Herman Hoyt, who succeeded Alva J. McLean, who had died in 1969. But in 1976, Dr. Hoyt retired, and a new president came into office, who, though well-known and a very brilliant teacher, and uh, theologically orthodox, as far as I could tell, nevertheless, very soon gave evidence of something that disturbed me. And I say this in love because, as a matter of fact, this new president didn't want to be the president, but was told, as it were, by the Board of Trustees, there isn't anybody else, you must be the president. <laughs> well, friends, in business, in industry, uh, you know as well as I do that a person may be an excellent uh, worker, not only skilled but absolutely brilliant on the border of being a genius in one particular specialization. But to pull that man out of the realm in which he's an expert, skilled and experienced, and all of a sudden make him the chairman of the board or the president of the corporation could be a total disaster for everybody. And to his credit, he said, no, I, I, I just prefer to study and prepare lectures and give lectures and write books, and thank you very much. But uh, they insisted. He finally succumbed, made certain limitations on what he would do, and um, the new administration began. And for four, five, six years, things seemed to go fine just because of the enormous momentum of the past of truly great leaders and the magnificent reputation of the seminary worldwide. But then everything started to cave in. Our administration, friends, perhaps sensing there were deep disturbances within the faculty as uh, Two professors were fired for immorality. Uh, two more professors were dropped for heresy. Uh, confidence began to shake, to wane, 
to weaken. People began to become suspicious of each other, and I noticed something that at the time I didn't dare say anything about, but in retrospect, many things now come to my attention that I never saw or dared to say anything about then, and let me, let me mention a big one. Uh, there was no uh, sense of humility before God on the part of the new administration to the point where there would be a confession that we have problems and we need to get together for special prayer. Everything in the way of problems was minimized for fear that if we admitted we had any problems spiritually, that people might not support the program which demanded vast sums of money to keep going. Once a huge machine is started where you have to pay mortgages and have campus with buildings and have all kinds of a staff to do all kinds of things to support a student body of 1,300. Admitting there's a problem is unthinkable in terms of what? Secular concepts of promotion and perpetuation of a program. So uh, the olden days were over, friends, where um, I vividly remember Dr. McLean saying to the whole student body, look, men, we're getting down on our knees right here in this chapel and pray to Almighty God. We have no way of knowing whether we're even going to have a salary next month for the faculty. I'll never forget those days. Those were our best days when we had nothing but God. Remember King David? When was he at his best? Living in a cave chased by Saul with 600 totally frustrated economic and social dropouts. He was at his best before God. And he finally lived in a great palace, didn't he? He was then at his worst. Watch out. God's ways are not necessarily men's ways of operating big corporations. You knew that, didn't you? And I began to sense there's something missing here. Uh, we're not being led into, uh, into uh, confession of sin, confession of need, acknowledgement of, of great weaknesses and problems, there was no appeal to our supporting churches and pastors nationwide saying, look, pastors, uh, could you come and meet with us and pray with us? We've got tremendous problems. We don't know what exactly is happening, but uh, we need prayer desperately. Never happened. Problems multiplied. Then in 1982, the administration thought that one way to solve everything was to hire a professional psychologist to bring his team, this is Dr. Larry Crabb, a very gracious, personable man. I've, I've hardly ever met anybody quite like Dr. Larry Crabb. Uh, he just sort of gushed all over us and made us feel warm and fuzzy all over. This is sort of a new thing happening. And he brought a team of psychologists with him and began to process the professors one after another. I don't know why he avoided me. I think he must have analyzed me as sort of a hopeless hangover of the dark ages or something. And a couple of other of the old professors were bypassed, but the younger people on the faculty were totally vulnerable. Let me tell you how it happened. And I am making a sad confession here for you folks. This may startle you. I think the most dangerous people on this planet are seminary professors. 
who are immature, spiritually speaking, who may be brilliant, but don't have a reputation among God's people for humility and godliness, and therefore, in their desperate effort to gain a reputation for academic brilliance, take their eyes off the Lord and look to each other in a worldwide competition against other professors to see who can write the most books and the most brilliant articles and give the most brilliant lectures. And these people were in very serious condition before the Lord. Larry Crabb, a professional psychologist, began to analyze things when he arrived on the campus and he saw some targets. He would start inviting these young professors uh, to his office or to his home and say things like this to them. Um, are, are you totally satisfied with your interpersonal relationships within your own family and among your friends? And of course, uh, such professors who normally would have spent their whole lives in libraries and have mastered thousands of books but hadn't had experience with people in ministries and churches would be very vulnerable to that kind of an approach. Well, of course not. I, anything you can do to help me will be greatly appreciated. And friends, the trap door was closed. What began to happen? You would be amazed. In five short years, by 1987, the whole faculty had polarized into the disciples of the psychologist and his team, where they met week by week and learned of the horrible things that had been done to them when they were young, where their needs were not met, and uh, learned how to uh, open up their inner, their inner thinking and lay it on the table before others to take off these layers of, uh, of um, self-protectiveness and begin to think more and more about who didn't meet my needs and uh, why am I frustrated? Why am I lonely? Why can't I uh, understand other people? Uh, why can't I, I, I not relate to other humans. Guess who was neglected now? God. Well, what about God? His word, his provisions, his grace, his forgiveness, his, uh, his word. The polarization took this form. Here's the whole psychology group over here, friends. And now here are the seminary people who hopefully were studying God's word to do God's will who were now increasingly in the minority and who were increasingly despised. Finally, the, the new president, the previous one that I have referred to having um, been removed from office in 1985, the new president determined to solve these problems that he inherited with a zeal for confrontation his predecessor had rarely exhibited, decided something of colossal magnitude was happening in the faculty and in the student body, 
that were now in two, as it were, great camps in opposition to each other. And he read Dr. Crabb's books, took copious notes, had already been deluged with letters from parents who were telling him that their children would have nothing more to do with their parents because they hadn't met the needs of their children. And so he uh, came to the seminary faculty in October 1987 and announced that the whole program was terminated, that it was unbiblical. In fact, it was so saturated with Freudianism that the school would probably never fully recover. Well, I'm not sure exactly what happened, and it doesn't make too much difference, friends, but for some mysterious reason, perhaps, the younger disciples of Dr. Crabb retaliated and threatened the president. He then completely reversed himself and allowed Dr. Crabb to teach another year and a half, publicly praised him internationally, having already told the pastors and the faculty that this man was a disaster. I talked to the president. He said, I will not. I will not become a crab basher. He will retaliate and destroy the school. My question is, friends, where's God? Of course you'll pay a price for taking a stand for truth, but God will take care of you. Whatever price you think you have to pay, God will take care of you if you stand for his word. But that day, you see, was gone. And what was now happening was this. The followers of the psychologist team all coalesced and, uh, uh, into a mutually supportive group that uh, was invulnerable to outward pressure or threats. Uh, those of us outside of that inner circle were being pushed step by step out of the seminary. Uh, two of my colleagues were dismissed in 1986, and um, I suppose the only reason I wasn't was because I'd been there so long. But uh, be that as it may, I began to sense that, um, that I was an outsider looking into a school I thought I belonged to. So I submitted my resignation and told the president, I just was very sorry, but I didn't feel I belonged in his team anymore. He said, no, we need you. In retrospect, friends, I'm heartbroken to tell you what I think he meant by that. We need your reputation. We need your effectiveness for recruiting students. But we don't need your opinions anymore on how to run a school. And so, after much agonizing prayer, I signed my contract for another year, and then disaster struck. That fall, which by now was 1989, I was teaching the book of Genesis and teaching the creation account in Genesis 1. Several students came up and said, Dr. Whitcomb, do you realize that uh, everything you're teaching here is being contradicted uh, by Dr. 
so-and-so who is teaching a course in Old Testament foundations. He is teaching that, uh, that Genesis says nothing about the creation of the universe and that Genesis, therefore, is on a parallel with uh, Egyptian and Babylonian creation myths, which ideas, of course, he had been taught in a godless school in Philadelphia called Dropsy, and he's a young professor, and he was a disciple of Dr. Crabb as well. I was absolutely horrified. I told the president. I wrote to the president. I was given no satisfactory response other than this, that this is a brilliant young man who very much wants to teach here. I couldn't believe what I was being told. Who cares whether he's brilliant if he's not teaching what our statement of faith says to say nothing with what God's word says his brilliance will only add to the danger of such a teacher being on this faculty. And so the final struggle began, and uh, then another disaster struck. Friends, we're not talking about minor differences of opinion on how to handle the Bible. The theology professor now, uh, I had by now been pushed out of chairmanship of the theology department, editorship of the Grace Theological Journal, directorship of the doctoral studies program, but so the new theology chairman invited a known feminist and his wife to come to hold a seminar on our faculty, uh, for our seminary in the spring of 1990. I protested to the administration, offered them tape recordings of this person that they were inviting who was notorious. It was completely ignored, and I began to realize, friends, the end had come. After years of trying to appeal to the administrators and not being heard, I did an unforgivable thing. And here is why I deserved to be dismissed in January 1990, February 1990. In desperation, I began to answer questions that frustrated pastors were asking who were sending money and students to Grace Seminary and asking me, what in the world is going on in our seminary? And I told them. That was the unpardonable sin. I understand that totally. With the mentality, friends, of many of the great organizations today in the Christian world, you do not criticize the leadership even if God's truth is being undermined. And so, of course, I was dismissed. But the feminist seminar occurred anyhow in April 1990. It was a disaster. Other theological problems were swept under the rug, and the seminary careened downward in an unending spiral. Its reputation tarnished, damaged, distorted, God's people asking questions and not receiving answers. And so I have documents here that I will make available to you tomorrow night and Tuesday night that... Uh, I have written not in bitterness or in judgmentalism toward individuals, not questioning anyone's motives before the Lord, only God knows hearts. But the fact of the matter is, dear friends, that uh, another great institution is gone.
My former professor of Hebrew and uh, Old Testament, then in 1951, remember, when I became professor, began teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the only seminary of the Evangelical Free Church, taught for many years. Then he began to see astounding things happening also in the 1980s, namely the professor of New Testament denied that Jesus Christ has a glorified body, that he's just a spirit. This is the Jehovah's Witness concept of the so-called resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection, you know, has to do with the body. What did the administration do with this person? Whitewashed it? What did the uh, administrative leaders of that denomination do? Ignored it? Dr. Culver then wrote letter after letter, appeal after appeal, along with another former professor there, Dr. Norman Geisler, who has written a whole book on the subject of the battle for the resurrection. The man is still there teaching, Dr. Murray Harris. Heresy is still being spread, tolerated, and we begin to see something of a pattern in seminaries. Once a seminary becomes established and wealthy, recognized, it becomes almost an invulnerable, self-perpetuating machine that cannot be criticized or touched for fear that people's salaries will be affected. And uh, the last thing an administrator wants to be told by supporting pastors is that such and such a man is not acceptable as a teacher of our disciples that we sent to you to train in the word of God. The attitude is very arrogant, friends. Try it sometimes. Contact the theological seminary that, uh, that you may have questions about. And the attitude is, whether it's openly expressed or not, pastors, mere pastors, don't tell us theologians what to do. We have the training, we know the original languages, we have the hermeneutical, exegetical skills, we know the Bible, and you will send your students to us and send your money and ask no questions. Can you believe that such a thing could happen in a theological seminary that professes to know and honor God and his word? Well, I have news for you. Every professor and every administrator in every theological seminary in the world has a sin nature. That may surprise you and is therefore accessible to the enemy. And unless he or she keeps a, a close eye on the Lord in humility and total obedience, willing to pay a price, whatever it may be, for truth to be honored and perpetuated, that professor is part of a total disaster about to happen. Seminaries are notoriously short-lived. Not one seminary ever survived from the 1800s into the 1900s, they all became apostate and collapsed and had to be replaced by new seminaries starting from scratch. And many of the great seminaries of this country that were prominent and recognized and appreciated in the 1950s are collapsing and are being replaced by other new ones that are small and struggling. Because you see, here's a principle and here's the point, friends. God doesn't have any grandchildren he just has children that obey him, and he doesn't have any institutions either. Just people who trust him 
and may for very specific purposes gather together, especially, of course, in the local church, but for sending out missionaries and for publishing Christian materials and for training disciples in technical issues such as the biblical languages. But you see, you can't find a, a theological seminary in the New Testament. And so to start one is a very hazardous thing because, in a, in a sense, it's a parachurch organism that is sort of dependent upon the church but really isn't and sort of does its own thing but depends on the church to pay the bills and to send the people, whereas the New Testament says the churches are to train their own people. The primary responsibility of a local church, friends, is not to ship its disciples a thousand miles away for somebody else to disciple, however famous or great they may be, because that disciple then becomes detached from the God-created atmosphere of love and prayer and concern and involvement in ministry that a local church ideally was designed by God to accomplish for wholesome, healthy, well-rounded, solid leadership in the next generation. When we detach these disciples from that atmosphere and put them into libraries for five years somewhere, learning highly technical things from people that the local church really doesn't know that much about, you're asking for very serious problems and you don't have any right to be surprised when those disciples return and you hardly recognize them anymore. Many times they have five or six opinions on every subject, but they're really not too sure what God has said on anything. That's an exaggeration, but not totally. There are always, thank God, exceptions. And my answer to that is, some students in some seminaries are able to totally survive spiritually, not because of, but in spite of the program they're studying at. Friends, what does this mean? This means that uh, God expects each generation to uh, discover the will of God and to be willing to pay the price for making that will, that truth, that spectrum of doctrines known to the next spiritual generation and not to just ride, as it were, on the reputation of what our ancestors did. God will not allow that. You have to discover his truth for yourself and be willing to pay the price that God expects you to pay to implement the Great Commission in that circle of people that he has put you into for influence, for truth, and you are accountable to God for what you've done with what he entrusted to you. Now, that doesn't mean that churches can't get together in a region and share with one another the pool of resources available for discipleship. It just means that you have to be very careful, very careful. And we face this, too, in our homes, don't we? How do we train our children in the whole counsel of God? Well, for many years, the idea was, well, let's send them off to this college or that college. Not my job, it's some professor's job out there. Well, that may be fine, but don't count on it. God said, you train them. 
you're the mother, you're the father. And therefore, whatever some college may do for your child, friends, you are responsible for everything that college teaches. You are responsible at home for everything that that child is learning. And therefore, we desperately need one another in local churches to pray for one another and our children because you will never survive the bema in the sense of receiving a reward if you tell the Lord, well, I wasn't responsible for all the things my child learned at such and such a school somewhere. That was the teacher's job, wasn't it? Don't ask the Lord that question. So you see, friends, the bottom line is this, and here's the full circle, isn't it? That over and over again, we have to reevaluate what are we doing with the Great Commission? What are we doing with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2? And that'll be our theme in the next hour, God willing. But um, one thing is obvious, very obvious. All institutions that have the name Christian are vulnerable to Satan, are composed of people with sin natures, and are, with only rare exceptions, disasters about to happen. You say, well, sir, you sound excessively pessimistic. Perhaps so. And perhaps for such a time as this, God has allowed me to be with you to warn you, friends, there is a price to pay for knowing and perpetuating truth in Satan's world. Now, what's our fellowship of churches doing about all this? The only seminary we have in Winona Lake, Indiana. The only college we have in Winona Lake, Indiana. Well-paid professors, beautiful campus, fully accredited regionally. What is our fellowship doing? Many, many of our pastors are becoming very disillusioned. Next Saturday, our national convention begins in Winona Lake, Indiana. Our protests three years ago at the way our agencies in Winona Lake were handling truth were ignored and rejected, put on the shelf, and we were told, you cannot, you cannot make open criticism of any of us here in Winona Lake for three years. We're having a moratorium on that kind of thing for three years. The three years are up next Saturday. <laughs> and so we'll be arriving in Winona Lake, hundreds of pastors from all over the world and missionaries from all over the world and pastors from all over this country. And the conservatives in the fellowship have already decided what they're going to do. It's called the Conservative Grace Brethren Association. Uh, we have rented a separate building in Winona Lake where we'll have our own meetings. <laughs> Not that we're having a separate convention, but we're going to have a place where we can pray and meet uh, people who may have questions about what's going on in our fellowship and in our institutions. We're available. We'll be much in prayer, eyes and ears open. We're not planning to uh, wave banners, make great speeches, or march out. We're just watching, and we're going to be praying because I want you to know, friends, we are deeply involved with the IFCA situation at Orlando, Florida. And we have heard 
that the leadership of the IFCA did not openly, honestly, courageously face the real issues, but swept them under the rug, and almost nothing was done, and churches are becoming very discouraged and are beginning to think of an independent direction. That's what I think is going to happen to us. The denomination is almost under the total control of the moderates, who are more interested in unity than truth. And therefore, the conservatives see the handwriting on the wall, have been profoundly affected by what happened at the IFCA convention in Orlando, and are preparing for the same fate. Namely, we will simply drift away from the fellowship. There'll be no more support to the agencies in Winona Lake on the part of many churches and pastors. We will have our own convention in Indianapolis in October, God willing. We've been invited by one of our larger conservative churches to do that. And uh, that's, the not, that's not the first conference the conservatives have held. But the parallel, friends, is remarkable between what you are experiencing and what we're experiencing, and I can name a half a dozen other conservative groups or relatively conservative groups of churches in America that are going through the same convulsions, and I want to quote, give you a verse on that. 1 Corinthians 11. For this reason, there must, there must be heresies among you so that those who are approved may be made manifest. You say, I can't believe it. You don't mean that God plans heresies in churches. Yes. Why? To provoke and shock the complacent saints into searching the scriptures and getting on their knees before God and stop assuming that everything's fine in headquarters over there somewhere. No, friends. Don't assume anything to be under control in any headquarters except that one. Only the upward look is totally satisfying. Be assured of this, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have everything under control there. But down here, just plan your whole Christian life on this assumption and you'll never be shocked or disillusioned. That if anything can go bad, can go wrong, it will. Yes, that's what our motorhome is telling us. If anything can go wrong with a motorhome, it will. In fact, it has. Now, the one who sold us that didn't say so. Friends, don't ever lock your heart into an institution or into sinful people. They will fail you. On the average, predictably, sooner or later, one way or another. Does that sound pessimistic? No, it is totally biblical. <laughs> but one person will never fail you, and that's the head of the church. And Jesus says, I told you so. Why did you take your eye off me and sort of rest in your complacency, drifting along as if everything's fine in headquarters somewhere? Why did you take your eye off me and look to men? Say, well, Lord, it's just so convenient and so comfortable to look to men. And the Lord is saying, fine, but um, without me, you can do nothing. Now, you knew that. 
You didn't come tonight to hear simplicities like that, did you? You've known for years. But people seem so shaken and so frustrated and so shocked that institutions they had trusted for years are beginning to fall apart and fail them. It's just as if the Lord is saying, well, it's about time you woke up. Things are very, very fragile on this earth. But I am capable, I'm able, I'm qualified, I'm very intelligent, I'm extremely powerful, I'm very experienced, please trust in me. And dear friends, my dream and the dream of some of the leaders that I have talked to in your fellowship who are very conservative and who have been a great help, by the way, to the fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, such as your pastors here at Middletown Bible Church. Uh, we are beginning to agree with each other, aren't we? That um, a new day can dawn, a greater day than has ever been known in the history of the church in 1960 years on this planet. And that is this, that out of the ashes of an organization that apparently has spent itself and has dissipated whatever original strength, convictions, and power God gave it, out of those ashes and ruins, God can raise up something even more beautiful and spectacular, namely you and me and whoever else says, look, I'm not discouraged. I didn't really expect all that much anyway to happen at Orlando or next week in Winona Lake. Please pray for us. It hasn't happened yet. God is able to do great things, but don't count on sign miracles in this phase of church history. God is able to bring forth something new. You notice I didn't say something big. Something spectacular. Something wealthy. Something with huge buildings, beautiful campuses, magnificent institutions that would cause the world to stop and look and admire. I said he's able to bring forth something new. And here's a verse on the new thing that I believe he will bring forth from your churches and ours. Here's a verse on it. Despise not the day of small things. Don't say, well, this is a pitiful loot. Where are our buildings? Where? Well, you don't have to have any. You don't have to have any money. You don't have to have a reputation on this planet. You just have one thing you need, and that's the Lord. Don't you think of Gideon who marched forth against 185,000 Midianites with tremendous confidence because he had like uh, some 30,000 soldiers? Really wasn't too much against 180,000. He had some trust in the Lord, right? God said, I'm not uh, too pleased with this army. Uh, let's eliminate all but 300 and see what's going to happen. Because Gideon, you have too much confidence in your size, your strength, your numbers. And when I win the victory through your pitiful 300, I will get the glory, not you. And it was a stupendous victory. And the Midianites never recovered. And that precious truth is enshrined in his word. So congratulations, friend. I was told this morning there were 300 here this morning. In the world's eyes, a pitiful army. But in God's sight, 
an incomparable potential for the generations to come under God. Despise not the day of small things. He's able from little things to produce things that glorify his name.